church to share for them in the treehouse. And uh, if parents, if you're here for the first time and have never done this, you're welcome to walk over there and take a look at what's going on. And um, you don't have to dismiss them either. You can keep them in here if you'd like to. Turn to John chapter 12. <clears throat> A few hundred years ago, there was a little gremlin named Rene Descartes. Crawled in an oven. He spent three or four days there. I don't know how long he was in there, but he sat in this oven. It wasn't on. He wouldn't have made it, but it was off. He sat in there, he's thinking, processing, thinking about life. And he came out with the observation that I think, therefore I am. The reason I share that this morning is because you may not realize that this little gremlin's simple statement, I think, therefore I am, may have tempered and engaged and influenced the way you think and the way you understand and the way you believe everything. You kind of have this mindset that if I can get my head around it, then it is. And if I can't think it and I can't understand it, then it must not be. Yet the reality is we are surrounded by things we cannot understand. Some of you may be able to explain gravity, but I know I can't, but I know it's there. <laughs> Some of you might be able to explain in great depth how the human body works and how we respond to stimuli and metabolisms and things like that. Most of us can't explain those things and we know they work because we're sitting here thinking and breathing and listening. But when it comes to belief and comes to our understanding of things, we have this mindset that if I can understand it, then it is. And if I can't explain it and get my head around it, then it must not be. The reason I share that at the beginning of this sermon this morning is because chances are, I know for sure, many of you are going to hear something that likely you have never heard before. Or if you've read it in our Bibles, You've done what I call the read real fast technique. Where you read real fast and get to the next section that you can't understand. This morning we're going to be engaging some truths. Really what I think are three diamonds that are at the foot of the cross. The first two diamonds, man, I, I would be surprised if there's not a person in here that doesn't say, yeah, man, I'm there, I'm tracking with you. But the third diamond is liable to wreck many of you reason I share this story about this little guy, Rene Descartes, and this mindset, I think, therefore, I am. And if I can think it, then it must be. It's because I'm begging you not to be guilty of letting this gremlin affect and influence the way you think and believe and understand. Because I hope you know that there must be some things that are bigger and grander and more mysterious than you can get your head around, yet they're still completely true. I hope you trust and believe that God's ways are not all discernible by man. We're creatures. And He's the Creator. If we could understand Him fully and explain Him fully and know Him fully and get our head and heart around everything, then either He would not be God or we would be God. And neither of those things are true. So this third diamond, I know you're in suspense right now, but you'll, you'll know what it is soon enough. 
This third diamond, I'm begging you. If you're hearing it for the first time, I'm begging you to not let Renee Descartes, a little gremlin in an oven, influence the way you think. Secondly, I'm begging you to notice my reference. Hear that? We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture this morning. If you're here for the first time, you're like, man, these guys, they're going to use their Bible. You bet. You need to have a sword in your hand. If you didn't bring yours, grab that blue one and the seat back in front of you. And you know what? You can put your name in the front of that bad boy. You can own it. That can be yours. If you did bring it, then you're set. You'll need it. I'll give you page numbers whenever we're flipping when I think of it. I'm, I may not think of it in some cases, but as much as possible, I'll try to give you page numbers. John chapter 12 is where we're beginning this morning. Beginning in verse 20. That's on page 899 of your Pew Bible or your English Standard Version. <coughs> Jesus has just entered Jerusalem on Sunday of Passover week. He's going to be nailed to a cross on Friday morning. He's in what you're about to read is what he's calling his final hour. It's really more like a week. Listen to what it, how this hour begins. John chapter 12, verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. A couple months ago, we met these Greeks. We gave them some fictitious names. Um, Stephanos and Thaddeus. You may remember that Sunday we were over at the uh, Civic Center. Stephanos and Thaddeus, these guys come to Jesus. and they, Or they want to come to Jesus. And they specifically, they come to a guy named Philip. Philip has a Greek name. So they're thinking, hey man, this guy's going to be one like, like me. He's kind of a Greek dude maybe. So I can talk to him and maybe he'll get us uh, an ear with Jesus. So Stephanos and Thaddeus came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. He didn't say, hey, that is, hey, Stephanos, man, I've been waiting for you guys. Y'all come on over here. Let me show myself to you. Let me reveal all that I am to you. Let me talk with you and hang out with you. He didn't even address Thaddeus and Stephanos. Listen to what he says. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's been saying this through the whole book of John. My hour's coming. My hour's not yet here. My hour's on the way. The Son of Man will be lifted up. He's been saying it over and over again through the book of John. And then here at this point, when Stephanos and Thaddeus come to him, bam! The hour begins. And he says this, the hour is where the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And what that means here is in the next couple of verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What he's talking about is the cross. The Son of Man is going to be like that seed that falls to the ground and dies, but in so doing gives life and bears fruit. I hope that as you're sitting here, you're realizing that your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or your family, that you may be the fruit of this work. That if you're believing on Christ and engaging the living God through the work of Christ, then you're the fruit of this seed. And this begins in this hour. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He's talking about discipleship and following him. That following him means that you've got to bear a cross. If he bore one, then you will too. And then still in the same conversation, the same context, 
Here's the word now. Still in, I'm talking about this hour. Still, I'm talking on Sunday while Stephanos and Thaddeus are still standing there. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said, oh man, I think it thundered. And then some other said, oh, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now the same conversation, the same context, Thaddeus and Stephanos are still standing there. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now, in this hour, in these remaining days, and ultimately this cross, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, the first two diamonds are diamonds that will be familiar to you if you paid attention the last three weeks. The first diamond we met three weeks ago is that the whole world is judged in this hour and through this work, through this one cross, through this one victim, through this one hour in a hill just outside Jerusalem called Golgotha. The whole world will be judged through that work. The tribes in Africa, the Aborigines in Australia, the Mayan Indians, the ninjas. Yeah, man, even the ninjas. The Egyptians that build the pyramid, built how, however they did it, I don't know. They will all be judged by this work in this hour. The guys that led this country out of the Great Depression. Those guys. Go, the guys that fought in the Civil War. The guys that fought in the Revolutionary War. Everybody that you know, everybody that has breathed, breathes currently, or will breathe, will be judged by this one work. What have you done with this cross? And what have you done with this victory of this cross? The whole world is judged in this hour. That's the first diamond, laying at the foot of the cross. The second diamond is that the ruler of this world is cast out. You've been paying attention the last couple of weeks where Satan really effectually through this cross. We know that Satan still continues to have tremendous power and influence in our world. We know that the whole world lies currently under the power and rule of Satan. But we know also that it's only by permission. And we know that through this cross that Satan got a big size 12 with big vibram lug sole, mountain climbing boots upside his backside through this cross. And he's got an appointment with a big old lake of fire and sulfur and brimstone that was secured in this hour. That was one on this cross. That's the second diamond that sits at the foot of this cross. The third diamond is going to require some unpacking of chapter 12, verse 32. Let's go there. I'm going to read the verse again. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. First of all, and I, when I. Frequently in the New Testament, the writers or the speakers are the reference, the subject that the person is writing about and talking about, they'll use that pronoun over and over again for the sake of emphasis. That's the case here. Christ says, and I, when I. Don't miss the I, in other words. He's saying, this is about me. There's an emphasis on the subject of this hour. It's an issue of singularness. It's an issue of onlyness. 
and soulness in the subject of this hour. Only he could earn these diamonds here at the foot of the cross. He was the only true innocent. He was the only unblemished sacrifice. No one else could earn and achieve these three diamonds sitting at the foot of this cross. And I win I. Thank you, Jesus. You're the only one that can claim that. Emphasis on I recognized and appreciated. And he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth. You might have a sense from the last verse that I read there this morning, verse 33, that he's talking about his cross. It says it in verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He's used this imagery before. Turn over a few chapters to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Jesus is having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. This guy's a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of the law. This guy Nicodemus would have recognized the story that Jesus is about to refer to here. Jesus is talking with him. He's asking him questions about how to believe and how to be born again. Jesus responds and gives him a foretaste, a taste of what is to come with his being lifted up. Listen to what he says in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Turn to Numbers chapter 21. Jesus refers to it, so I think we can take the time to refer to it ourselves. Numbers chapter 21. That's in the Old Testament. Page 120. Let's go with 129. Nation of Israel, you're going to see a lot of them this morning. We're going to refer a lot to the nation of Israel because how God interacted with the nation of Israel is how God interacts with the new Israel. That's you and me. So we get to know God's redemptive character by getting to know how He's dealt with these people for thousands of years. And this story, the story about Israel, they're wandering in the desert. God has already given them manna, which is like this sweet bread. They get up in the morning and they go outside their tent and look around on the ground and there's breakfast. Sweet bread laying on the ground. And not only that, they also have quail. Quail is not a, a word about something weird. It's a bird. So they have also have meat. And God has given them that, provided that for them. But here's, listen what happens in chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Hmm. For there's no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. Hmm. So Moses prayed for the people. God didn't take away the serpents, though. He made a way. He gave them a way that would provide hope for them. And here's what he says. He says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it up on a big pole, that everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's the way it worked. A bunch of grumblers rightfully getting bit by a bunch of snakes. Rightfully dying. God makes a way by 
Moses, take a snake, make a bronze snake, and put it up on a big stick. And oops, I've been bitten. Mm-hmm, there's the bronze snake. Whew, I feel better. That's the way it worked. That's the picture of the cross. That we are bitten by sin, and our veins pulse and course with venom of guilt and venom of wronging a, whole, wronging a holy God. But yet God has made a way in that He has lifted up what effectually is our blind serpent. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, He made Him who knew no sin, sin on our behalf. He lifted Him up. And He put our sin on Him so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ became our bronze serpent. That's the picture of Him being lifted up. Now, the term lifting up is used elsewhere in the New Testament for the word exalted. In the original language, the word is used interchangeably in the New Testament. In the Gospels, it's the term lifting up. But in the, in the letters, like Paul wrote, he uses the same word and is translated with our translators as exalted. And man, I remember reading off forever. You know, when I'm growing up, exalted. Huh, that's kind of a weird word. I don't use that in my common vernacular. I don't use that when I'm exalting dinner. What do you do with exalted? It's a weird kingdom word. And you have a tough time envisioning what it looks like? This is what it looks like. Son of man being lifted up on a cross, being nailed to what was called the patibulum, and being lifted up on what's called the stipe. That's exalted. That's lifted up. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, rest of the verse, here's where things start to get complicated. I will draw all people to myself. Now let me tell you just briefly, I'm going to engage this thoroughly here in a few minutes. I'll tell you briefly that the word draw means drag. It means drag. Like, if you're out at the ocean, and you're out there, you're kind of hanging out, and you're chilling, you're catching some rays, and you look out in the water, and somebody is going under, and they're drowning. And in fact, you see them go under for the last time, and yet you swim out there like Aquaman, and you grab them, and you drag them into the shore. That's dragging. That's the word that's used here. I like it a whole lot better than draw. I'll address that in a few minutes. Also recognize that what he's saying here is a future tense picture. Look at John, back at John chapter 12. I lost my page here. John chapter 12. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, that's the reference, which is Friday morning in the wee hours. When I'm nailed to that patibulum and hung from that stipe, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So while this, as he's speaking, is a future tense event, for us, it's a past tense event. That in this hour, that's the third diamond. The first diamond is that the whole world is judged through that cross. The second diamond is that Satan gets a big size 12 vibram sole mountain climbing boot up his backside. And the third is that all peoples, I'll address that here in a moment, are dragged to the cross, through the work of the cross. Now, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, for by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. For by one cross, that's what I said in the beginning where He said, and I, when I, He's pointing to the singularness, the soulness, the onlyness of Him. 
talking to the singleness, onlyness, and soulness of this cross. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That phrase, those who are sanctified, in the original language means this. Listen to it. Those who are set apart as sacred by God. That means those who are reckoned sacred. Those who are reckoned sacred. That they are secured. That picture of them being sacred and set apart and holy is achieved through one cross. By one offering they are perfected for all time. And the cross is the drawing point for all time. For the sanctified. For the holy. For those set apart by God. For those regarded as sacred. For some time, I've been a little bit troubled with the name of our church. Cross Point. You know, what is that? Cross Point? I mean, is it... What is, I'm just not even knowing what it is. It hit me how appropriate our name is when I was preparing for this sermon. I shared it with all the elders. I couldn't believe it because we laughed about our name. It, our church was named before any of us came on board here, so that's why we really want to laugh about it. We didn't have any ownership there. But it hit me that the connection... I spent some time in, in Germany... And found that in Germany they used the word Punkt, which is German for point. And they put anything in front of it. And what it means is the gathering point. There are signs all over Germany that have a T for T-Mobile. And then right after that they have Punkt. If you want to use T-Mobile, this is where you gather, right here at the T-Punkt. And I thought, how appropriate that we are. It's on the front of your bulletin. Crucifix. I don't even know how to say the first part of it. Crucifix Punkt. We're the people of God gathered at the foot of the cross. Yeah, it makes total sense now. Kreutz, boom. Now the last part in regards to all people. I need to prepare you for the reality that all doesn't always mean all. All means a number of different things in our Bible. In some cases it means every individual person. In other kind cases it means all sorts of people. In other cases it means all kinds of people. Or all kinds of something. Widgets, not in our Bible, but it can mean. We use all, all the time in different ways. And we don't put boundaries on that as always meaning the same thing. I've been hungry all day. You've been hungry every single moment since you got up? You mean that's all you've been thinking about? We use it all the time. There's an example. We use it all the time, but it doesn't mean all necessarily in every single case. All doesn't always mean all. And realize in the original language, this word people is not in there. It's not in the original language. It's a translator's insertion. The way this verse would read, if unpacked from the original language, it would read just like this. And Christ, when He was crucified, dragged all sorts of people to Himself. We'll give you an example of the use of the word all. Turn to Romans chapter 5. We could have a whole sermon on all. We really could. We're not going to, but I do want to address this picture where you can understand that all doesn't always mean all. Romans chapter 5, Paul writes to the church at Rome, and he's contrasting what is earned through Adam, excuse me, what is lost through Adam is earned and restored through Christ. He's contra contrasting the old Adam and the new. He even uses that same language. And listen to two, ver two uses of the word all in the same verse. Look at Romans chapter 5, page 942. Verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 12. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's being Adam, Eve ate of the fruit, said, hey Adam, you want to buy it? Adam said, cool. So that's what this is referring to. Sin entering the world through one man, and death came through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sin. Is that the verse I want? No, I want verse 18. Hey, I've done this twice today. Give me a breath. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. The same picture, that same sin in that same garden where Adam and Eve take of that fruit through one trespass led condemnation for all men. That means all, every individual person's. For all of sin and all fall short of the glory of God. We have tons of scripture that points to us knowing that, that all means every individual person. No one is righteous, no, not one. We're born in sin, we're conceived in iniquity. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's sick. We know that that all means all men. Now listen, keep reading. So one act of righteousness, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all individual men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life. For all men. That doesn't mean all, every individual person. Or I'm going to accuse you of being a universalist. If you think that every single person that's ever lived or will ever live or lives currently will be saved through this cross, then you're called a universalist. That's what they believe. And they've taken most, if not all, of our Bible and they've torn pages out or torn, thrown the whole thing out. All means two different things in the same verse right here. Here's what this all means in John chapter 12. Look at Romans chapter 7. Let me give me an example. Romans chapter 7, verse 8. This is an example of how all is used in John chapter 12. Now let me tell you something, y'all. I'm begging y'all to engage this. I realize this may be more journey than some of you are accustomed to going on on a Sunday morning. This is, this is a big meal. If you miss a part of it, then you, you're going to really miss out on something awesome. Listen to this. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That's the same word that's used in John chapter 12 for all. This passage properly translated is, and Christ, when He was crucified, dragged all sorts of to himself. So those three diamonds is first of all, the world is judged sitting at the foot of the cross. It's a big, huge, 100 carat diamond. Secondly, that the ruler of this world gets a size 12. And third, is that all sorts are gathered through that work of that cross. I want you to appreciate that this also is true contextually here in John chapter 12. How did the story begin? I started back where Stephanos and Thaddeus come to Jesus and I pointed out time and time again as I read through that this is the same conversation. I don't know where Jesus was looking as he spoke John 12, 32, but I wonder if he's looking at Stephanos and Thaddeus. And he's saying, man, I'm going to gather even those two jokers. I'm going to even gather... The Gentiles. This is not just a Jew thing anymore. People listening here in Jerusalem on Passover, on Sunday. This thing is going to be about all sorts of people. 
every tribe and every color and every tongue and every people group and every sort of people that you could possibly imagine will be represented and gathered through this cross. That's the context of the passage. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. All sorts of people, even Thaddeus and Stephanos. Revelation chapter 5. This is chapters 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation of the throne room vision of God and of Christ in that order. Chapter 5 is the throne room vision of the Lamb. John, the writer of the book of Revelation, is having this vision of the throne room. He sees this Lamb standing as if slain, standing there. And everybody's bumming because nobody can open the, 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 the seals that are on a scroll. Nobody's worthy to open these seals. But then they identify, oh, but the Lamb is worthy. And listen what they say in chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, listen to them singing. We'll be singing with them. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You were lifted up. Let's take it back to John 12. You were lifted up, nailed to a patibulum, hung on a spike, from every tribe, you are ransoming, ransoming people for God. From every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. That's what this passage is about. It's about God gathering the people from the four winds. From every tribe and every nation and every language and every people. I spent most of my life reading my New Testament like an individual. Like thinking just about me. And not recognizing that most of the New Testament is about people groups. It's about Jew and Gentile. It's all over the New Testament. When we begin to read our Bible looking for peoples and people groups, then we're getting at the original meaning of the passage and then we're truly understanding it. When you read it as an individual, you'll walk away with a man-centered salvation that's about you. When you read it in terms of people groups, then it's a totally different thing. It changes everything. So this passage, if read as it's translated, go back to it. John 12, let's look at it again. We've got to have our heads engaged in this. John chapter 12, verse 2. If we read it as it's translated, and I, when I'm lifted from the earth, will draw all people to my we read that and that sounds like everybody's going to get drawn to the cross and we kind of have an opportunity to check it out and say, ah, oh, I pass. Some people say, ah, oh, I pass. I see all that blood. I see that, that crown of thorns. I see you suffering up there, but I, I pass. The reality is, this passage is not about Jesus doing some sort of worldwide cosmic dance for everybody to see who's interested. To see who votes. Oh, I, I'll take it. It's not what this is about. This is about peoples being effectually gathered through that cross. That's what this passage is about. So it doesn't mean that every individual person over the ages has been and is being drawn to Christ. I bet you thought this or you had this conversation with somebody. What about the tribes in Africa? What happens to them? What about the Aborigines? 
What about the Mayan Indians that never heard about Christ? I've got to understand that through my Bible that tells me that no man comes to the Father but by the Son. These people can't stumble upon Buddha and God say, okay, A for effort, come on in. Or they can't worship the Son and beat some drum in some jungle and God say, okay, A for effort, come on in. I know that my son died on the cross, but you're ignorant to it, so come on in. There's no pass for ignorance. There's one way to come to the Father, and that is but by the Son. Not every person is drawn to the Son. And you'll understand that when I explain the difference between drawn and dragged. Sometimes we have this picture and this mindset that maybe people that die, tribes in Africa, beating those drums, maybe the Aborigines, maybe the Mayan Indians or the ninjas or whoever that died apart from hearing Christ, is that maybe they get some sort of Hail Mary opportunity at the last minute. After they die, that Jesus grabs them by the nape of the neck and says, Here I am. Here's the fire. Here's me. You want me or the fire? No? Okay. That's called exegesis. Instead of exegesis, exposing the word of our, the, the, the truth in our Bibles, that's injecting truth in there. And or injecting something in there. And calling the truth. Our Bible says nothing about that sort of encounter. It doesn't work that way. When you take your last breath, if that reckoning work of Christ is not part of it, then there is but one faith for you. And it is the lake of fire. Not all are drawn to the cross. There's character things that we can understand from this passage about this work. It's 1232 that people are plucked and people are dragged. Let's talk about plucked first. Turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Page 794. A couple weeks ago I read this passage and we were talking about Satan. And really recognizing the fact that Satan is part of the equation. This picture of salvation, that Satan's in there and his role is the accuser. Really, he's the one saying, you're guilty. Listen to this story. This is a vision that Zechariah had where he's seeing a guy named Joshua. It's a representative of the people of God. It's a representative of the nation of Israel. It's standing before the throne or standing before God. Listen to this story because this is our story, people. This is the, this is the gospel. Listen to what happened. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. What he's saying is, Joshua's guilty. <laughs> Look at his dirty clothes. Look at his iniquity all over. Joshua's not like you, our God, because you're holy. Joshua's different. He's guilty. That's what the accuser does. And listen to what God says to, God, to, to Satan. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you. He's not disagreeing with him. Because <laughs> Joshua does have dirty clothes. You're about to see it. Joshua does have iniquity. Joshua is rightfully in the fire and should rightfully be consumed. But God says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord, and here's why, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, i.e. Joshua, i.e. Israel, rebuke you. Is not this a brand, a burning stick plucked from the fire? God is in the business plucking, burning sticks and brands from the fire. That's your story. You may not realize it, but you're burning. 
we're on fire. And he blocks us from that fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angels. Just in case you think Joshua really maybe was an okay dude. Joshua was standing before the angels clothed with filthy garments. His garments are filthy because he's wicked. Just like everybody else. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. He will get clean clothes and a new clean hat. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. He's standing by and approving. I approve of this. Because this is grace and mercy in motion. This is the redemptive character of our God plucking Joshua from a burning fire that he deserves. He doesn't deserve the plucking. God's redemptive pattern. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. It is in God's character to pluck. Deuteronomy chapter 7, page 152, verse 6. God is communicating to the nation of Israel. Listen to what he says. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. He will pluck. The Lord your God has plucked you from the fire. <laughs> My insertion. He has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possessions out of all the people who were on the face of the earth. And it wasn't because you were shining and pretty and beautiful. It wasn't because there was anything special about you. In fact, in verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. In fact, It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, really, from the fire, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Because the Lord loves you that you've been plucked. It's in His nature to pluck the guilty, the small, the insignificant, and the undeserving. I hope you're seeing yourself in that. Is our story. That's the character of this cross. It's the instrument of plucking. Zechariah chapter 3, God reaches out his big hand and grabs Joshua. Our story is that the cross reaches out and plucks you. Turn to Mark chapter 13. beginning in verse 24 Jesus is speaking of the end times when he returns it's on page 850 he says but in those days after that tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be fallen from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken you see that all over Revelation and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and listen to this plucking the motion 
And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect. Elect is another word for plucky. It means chosen. I understand if you don't like it. I'm going to share some personal observation with you here in a moment. If you don't like that word, oh, it seems a little bit presumptuous. A little bit off. I understand that, but it's in our Bible. And then he will send out angels and gather his elect, his pluckies from the four winds and the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter is writing to believers that are scattered all over the Roman Empire. Now look, well, listen to what he says to them. He says, You are a chosen race. He could have said, You are a plucked people. The word chosen race means you are elect. You are electos. You are a chosen race, a plucked people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's my confession. Before a couple of years ago, I literally hated the word elect. I, I had conversations with the other elders. Like, man, I don't use that word. I just don't like that word. And the reason is because I came in contact with people who seem so haughty and so proud in their use of it. Like, oh, you've arrived, haven't you? You're something else. Are you one of the elect? Okay. I jettisoned a biblical teaching because it was unsavory to me. Renee Descartes went in the grimoire. When you jettison that, you put that to the side and you let this Bible define what you believe and you go, oh, well, elect is all over the place. And this may be interesting to you, even if you're like, man, I don't like that word. Maybe you like the word church. The church in the original language is ecclesia. Ecclesia is the gathering of the elect. Elect. And God is an eclectic God. He's gathering people, plucking people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And that's what is achieved through the work of this cross. He's not dancing for everybody to see who's interested. He's plucking. And you're about to see what else he's doing here in a moment. He's dragging. Who I share with you about dragging? I'll tell you the character of this plucked people. It ought to be a lovely character. It ought to be a surprise to shock people like Can you believe? Plucky? Elect? You could have done better than that? Yet, but I want to engage that now. I don't like the term drawn because drawn sounds kind of like a dance. 
it kind of sounds like what I had to do to Christy to get her to marry me. You know, I had to really woo her. I mean, I had to work. Boy, we dated for five years. I had to work hard to get her to marry me. I don't like the word drawn because it sounds kind of like a lure, like an enticing sort of work, kind of a beguiling work where God just has to turn on all his charm to win our hearts. I don't like the word drawn. The original language says drag. I like that word because the reality is we are dragged to this cross. He's the Savior through and through. In John chapter 3, when he's speaking with Nicodemus, Nicodemus says, hey, Jesus, how do you do those great tricks? Jesus doesn't even answer. He says, you must be reborn from above if you want to see and experience and know the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but my brother, I think I was kind of passive. I don't remember it. If anything, I was probably resistant to it. How dare you take me out of this nice, warm environment? I want to come kicking and screaming. We are reborn from above when we turn to Christ. We are arrested and dragged. I don't like drawn. It just sounds too sweet. It sounds too reciprocal. Ephesians chapter 2. Turn there. I go there just about every week. I, I know that I go there a lot. But man, the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, if you spent the next 10 years studying the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, you would not come to the best of the best. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once formerly walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not working, son of disobedience. He's talking to Jews, or to Gentiles. And now he brings in the Jews. I told you that so much of our Bible is about Jews and Gentiles. Listen, he says, Among whom, us Jews, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, my two favorite words in the Bible, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, see a baby in the womb? As in, passive? You can't, you can't do anything. See the dude in the ocean. He's just gone out for the last time. Glove, glove, glove. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, drowning in the ocean, made us alive. Who's the maker there? God is the maker. We're on the receiving end of being made alive. That's not all, though. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved, in case you forgot. And he raised us up with him. Another thing that he did, he's the raiser. We're the raisee. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's the seater. We're just the seater. That's the dragon. He's the doer. He's the one that does the work. And why did he do that? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Toward us in this hour. Toward us in this cross. That's what's going on here. That's what drag means. We've seen it in John all over the place. The picture in John 5 where a guy's laying lame. He's been lame for 38 years in the pool of Bethesda. And he just kind of seeks him out, plucks him. There were probably hundreds of people laying around the pool of Bethesda. Yet Jesus plucks him. He comes to him and comes to him only. 
And the guy's too stupid to even answer his question. Do you want to be healed? Um, I don't know. I don't have anybody to roll me over into the water when the water stirs. You read the story and you understand why that's kind of funny. And then Jesus said, him out of water. Dragged. In John chapter 8, he rescues a woman that's surrounded by a bunch of men with stones just like this. Ooh, guilty. Caught in adultery. He drags her away by what he shares and what he says. He saves her and rescues her. In John chapter 9, he rescues a man and actually gives sight to a man that's been blind his whole life. The man's so blind, he doesn't even know Jesus is walking by. And Jesus saves him, gives him sight. And then the ultimate picture, the culminating sign in the book of John is where a dude is laying dead and decaying for four days in his tomb. And he, by the Mighty power and work of Christ is called from death to life. God is the Savior. Lazarus is dragged from death to life by the only thing that can do it, and that's the power of Christ. We are these people. You've got to appreciate it. We are the, the woman called adultery. We're the guy laying lame 38 years. We're the man born blind. We're Lazarus stinking and decaying in our tomb. That's our story. We live in Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, we own a condo and we're sitting around having margaritas in it. By the pool. In fact, we're laughing at Noah. <laughs> Building an ark, you old goofy thing. That's our story. We treat the story of Noah and the flood like good people float and bad people sin. And the reality is, we all sin. The reason Noah floated, the reason his family is preserved as a remnant, is because it says at the beginning of the story, God found favor in Noah. Noah was found favor in God's eyes and he was reckoned righteous. Good people don't float. There's no such thing as good people. We all sink. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. No one is righteous. No, not one. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. The best we have to offer is filthy rags. Our hearts are stone cold and they are deceitful above all else. They are desperately sick and we must be dragged to this cross. I've had this vision, this illustration that's kind of been developing. Unfortunately, my illustrations really get developed a whole lot more after I preach it. I don't know why. But it's in its fledgling stages right now where God is kind of walking down this catwalk. And I don't mean a catwalk that's on um, the outside of a building, you know, where they're doing scaffolding work. I mean a catwalk like the model. But God is this model walking down the catwalk. He's showing off his wares. He, he, that was my invitation, prancing. He's prancing. He's doing the model walk. And the whole world has this opportunity. That's the mindset of the gospel. When we read passages like that but we don't understand it, that he's drawing all peoples. That everybody's there at the catwalk. Everybody's there at the show. And he's walking down the catwalk and then we get to show interest. And whoever shows interest in him, he says, okay, I'll save you. Imagine that same story with the Israelites sitting there among the Jebusites, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Egyptians, the Edomites, name all the guys, Greenvilites. They were all sitting there. And then it's Israel that said, oh, well, you look good. And everybody else says, oh, I'm passing. 
The reality is everybody said pass. The reality is everybody at the show where God is walking the catwalk in all His glory and His majesty and wonder and splendor, everybody at the show is looking in the mirror. Are they looking at each other? Ooh, you look good tonight, boy. Are they looking in the shadows? We're saying, oh, I like Him. That's the human story. thought about this picture of the difference between drawn and drag. I think the reason that we have such a tough time with this picture of God having to arrest us is really the picture. The catwalk picture is that Israel didn't choose God. God's not the chosen God. Israel was the chosen people. The reality was not that Israel said, mm, you look good, I think I like you. God grabbed them by the shirt and jerked them up on the catwalk and said, I will awaken love in you. I will give you eyes to see my beauty. I will open the eyes of your heart where you will see me and know me and worship me. That's the picture of the gospel. I realize that we have a tough time with this sort of thought. Our modern minds have such a tough time because the way we define love. The way we define love is boy meets girl. Really, I was thinking about this. This is this boy meets girl picture where boy meets girl, boy tells his best stories and does his best stunts on his cool BMX bike. Boy has a cool dude. His hair kind of sticks up in the front and his hair's kind of combed forward and he wears cool clothes. And girl likes that. And boy tells some cool stories and girl swoons over boy. And falls in love with boy and adores him forever. And we view that as the kind of love that's involved in the gospel. And y'all need to know that that's chick movie love. I especially don't like that. That's be my excuse why I don't go to chick movies anymore. I don't like that kind of love. Now, my wife wants to go to a movie like that. We're going. Good save. But this sort of love is so dependent. And so reciprocal. It is. Let's, let's treat it for what it is. It's so shared where we're drawn to each other and we fall madly in love with each other. This is not the love of the cross. I'll give you the illustration of the cross. Instead of boy meets girl, boy meets death row inmate. Boy meets death row inmate and tells death row inmate his best stories. He's real and he's true and he's genuine sharing the truth about boy with death row inmate. And then boy liberates death row inmate from his prison cell. And then as if it's not, as if that's not scandalous enough, boy then enters death row inmate's cell, lives out the remainder of of his sentence. And at an appointed hour, walks down the hall. We call it the Via Dolorosa. He walks down the hall and he bears my chair and he takes my baggage. That's the love of the cross. That's the kind of love that we're talking about here, fellow death row inmates. We don't dance with him like some schoolgirl. Don't fall in love with Him. He awakens love within us. He gives cold, dead 
stony hearts. Flesh beat for him. That's the work of the cross. Understanding this, people, I, I realize you may have been a Christian for decades. If you've never seen this, you've not known grace. You can't see grace apart from digesting and eating and dining on these truths, however unsavory they may be to you at this very moment. If you're sitting here right now saying, man, this is really hard. I don't know if I can go there, but I think I'll try and swallow it. You're getting a foretaste of grace. You're going to see the grace and mercy that fuels worship like you've never seen. You're going to feel and see and understand and experience because now you can visualize grace and mercy where He truly saves the undeserved. That's God's but You can't even recognize His beauty. But for Him, awakening love within you. If His choice of you was based on any merit in you, then it would not be grace. Nobody flows is the reality. But He's made an ark for us it's shaped like a cross. And he says, get on. That's your only hope. You're plucked and dragged and saved and must be quickened from death to life. From blindness to sight. From worshiping creature to worshiping creator. In the first service, Share the passage in closing. I'm not going to share right now because I want us to spend some time responding to this. But I want you to jot it down. It's Romans chapter 9. Shepherds, I charge you. I charge you with this. If you were in the first service, you may not have to do this. But if you were, were not, even if you are like, oh man, yeah, this, I, I've, I've seen this, I understand this, I know this. Even if you are in that place, but likely there are many of you that are going, dude, <laughs> I've just never gone here before. I have a tough time with this. Read Romans chapter 9. Read Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 24. And you will understand His plan and His purpose for enduring with vessels of wrath made for destruction so that some vessels of mercy will be there. You can't have vessels of mercy without vessels of wrath. Also in Romans chapter 9, he addresses the, the robot question. <laughs> the question I get so often, well, aren't we like a bunch of robots if it works the way you say it works? You may not talk that funny if you've ever asked me that question, but I, I like to make you look silly when I, by using that voice. Not really. That's the question that keeps coming up. Aren't we just a bunch of robots? That's answered in Romans chapter 9. He addresses it. I beg you, urge you to dine on that chapter. It's in our Bible. It's oft neglected. Yeah. It's a read real fast chapter. Oh, I know we can go to Romans chapter 9. That's what I hear. What, what, what is it? Is it some sort of special clause about Romans chapter 9? We don't have to believe that chapter? Or it's just kind of in a place of insignificance? Less importance? It's right there in black and white. Read it. I'll give you context for it before you read it. Paul was writing to the church at Rome, and they're troubled by all Israel hadn't turned to Christ. They're like, man, they had the whole Old Testament 
It was the Only Testament, but they had the whole story. They had 1,500 years of temple worship, sacrificial system. They had the desert experience. And then they saw Him crucified in their city. And they saw Pentecost and people speaking in tongues and flames of fire and all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Why is it all Israel believing? And that's why Paul is responding in that chapter. Just because they're related by flesh doesn't mean that they're children of the promise. Read the chapter. It will wreck your world. Rock your world to it. Last couple of hundred years, we've marginalized these sort of truths. We kind of treat them almost like if we treat them at all. Like it's kind of apologetic. Or if somebody believes these truths, that they have an agenda. Y'all know my agenda if you've been here any period of time. It's my agenda is the next verse. That's my agenda. What's your vision for Crosspoint Fellowship? Uh, John 13? <laughs> what else do you need? You have to come up with something better than that? It's not about an agenda. It's about believing every word front to back. And I'm telling you, if you're sitting here right now, it's like, man, I just can't go there. That's just too hard for me. I'm begging you not to marginalize this. Not to let a little gremlin in the oven influence your thinking. I can't think that. So it must not be. This book right here has got to be what defines our faith and our worldview. It's the only timeless message. It's the only thing that doesn't change. This is the instrument for defining those things. We can't marginalize these truths just because they're kind of unsavory to the modern mind. We've kind of created this Jesus in the last couple hundred years that is like this little needy Jesus. Knocking on the door of our heart. Little tiny Jesus. Please let me in. Who's God in that? I think that imagery is more needy than God. No, I'll pass. Man, nobody operates that way with a star of God. If God is dragging and drawing you, you're going. Baby being delivered. And when you really appreciate what is taking place here, then you walk out of your prison cell and you see the lights flicker when you know that the Lamb of God took your place and took your voltage, and then your worship takes on life. Then your faith has deep roots. And it's not based on something where God is beholding to you. He's already beheld in that finished work on that cross. It changes you. 